I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is the We Are Going Up podcast. We've got the Football League covered. Hello, welcome along. Here we go with episode 115 of We Are Going Up. I'm Mark Crossley and remember the day. It's actually one of those rare weeks where everyone in the studio is pretty happy as all our sides were victorious at the weekend. David Cameron Walker is here. Hello. Hello, sir. Jim Knight is back as well. Hello. Happy birthday for last week. And uh, Happy go- birthday last week. Saturday. <laughs> oh, you can tell Dave didn't wish me a happy yeah. birthday. Can't you? <laughs> you and we'll get back to Thanks that later. Didn't tell me. <laughs> <laughs> right, um, we've got a cliffhanger from last week's show. Oh, Just yeah. who is the statue of Clive of yeah. in Shrewsbury Town Centre? Here we go. Major General Robert Clive, born 25th of September 1725, died 22nd November 1774, also known as Clive of India, was a soldier and statesman who established the military and political supremacy of the East India Company in Bengal. He is credited with securing India and the wealth that followed for the British crown. He became the MP for Shrewsbury in 1761 and was elected mayor in 1762. There you go. You're happy with that answer? I am, very much so. Uh, that was a courtesy, the two unfortunate. Or just any old Clive. <laughs> exactly. And Graham Large, he that out. Don't ever show, uh, say that this show isn't an education. And also, as uh, something we completely forgot to mention a few weeks ago, you said, I think you were on the phone, and you said that we were talking about uh, fastest players in the division. I remember this, yeah. And you yes. said there should be some kind of race yeah, between them. Well, Graham Large got in touch, sent us a video. It's actually happened. Um, it's an, I mean, you did watch the video, didn't you? That was tweet. I, I, I did you not watch it? I think I got around to watching it. I, I watched see it in tweet. Oh, it's an, <laughs> incredible. Ludicrous. John McCurrick. It's just, from the oh, John McCurrick. John McCurrick. Who wins it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be, be quite a change, wouldn't it? John McCurrick. <laughs> no. The 100 metres. He hosts it. It's from the Rumbelows Cup final at Wembley. The Rumbelows Cup. <laughs> Wembley 91, Wonderful. United against Sheffield Wednesday. Eight players compete before and in a 100 metres race on the Wembley okay. pitch for a prize fund of 10 grand, won by John Williams of Swansea in 11 seconds 49. On the footage, there's a young Gary Lineker in the studio, a young Elton Wellesby, one well, not that young, uh, John McCrick and Steve Cram. It's one of the strangest Any things. Any other household names in the, in the race? I think Adrian Littlejohn, ex-Berry player, yeah. was one of the, the, uh, the I'm trying uh, to think players. back. It was a few weeks ago now that I watched it. I'm struggling to remember it. It's about Just, 25 yeah, years ago, to be fair. It's incredible. Yeah, we'll tweet that later. It's aged so badly. We'll tweet clip, it. Hasn't it? We'll tweet it at Waggy Podcast so you can yeah, have a look. Have a look. Uh, quick reminder to um, snap up your free audiobook from Audible. Our friends there, if you haven't uh, done it yet, if you're a brand new listener, maybe you just discovered the podcast for the first time, you can get a free uh, one month trial and a free audiobook of your choosing right now. There's 80,000 to pick from. Loads of good football books on there, uh, football audiobooks if that's your thing. Uh, go to audible.co.uk slash going up. That's audible.co.uk slash going up. Right, later in the show, we will look back on the weekend's action and the best deals done in the transfer window and the shambles that is Leeds United, the laughing stock of the Football League, I've got to say, over the last week. However, it, um, it was only a couple of weeks ago we had Phil Hay from the Yorkshire Evening yeah. Post on. So uh, check the archive on SoundCloud to listen to that interview if you missed it first time around instead we're going to focus on something a bit different for the bulk of the show uh, this week because it's a special as you can see a bit longer on scouting now DC why scouting well slightly more broadly than just scouting I guess it's your transfers recruitment scouting uh, as a whole really obviously we've just we've just got past the the month of nonsense that is the January transfer window. If, if I ever hear anyone say the words "slam shut" <laughs> ever again, I'll, I'll go. It's a done mad. deal. Oh, yeah, um, and I just think there's got to be more to it than that, hasn't there? You know, there's, there's got to be more to the process of bringing in players to a football club than simply just you looking at a, unless you're a Harry Redman. manager database or, or you know going to a list and picking picking one out and saying I need a striker I'm going to get him go to YouTube I'm going to get him and you know it, there's so much hype and noise generated by Twitter by Sky Sports News by papers by the radio by everything and I just feel that as football fans there's more to it and, and a lot more fascinating areas of the subject that we can hopefully delve into. Absolutely. Well, to help us out, we've got uh, two brilliant guests um, about to come on. And what we're going to do, because um, obviously these are going to be quite in-depth chats, we're going to upload the full 
uh, interviews uh, on SoundCloud. So if you go to soundcloud.com slash Wagyu podcast, you can hear the full interviews um, with our two guests today. Uh, right now, you can hear slightly shorter versions of them. Uh, later, we'll be speaking to the author of a brilliant new book about scouting, which came out last year called The Nowhere Men, The, Unsto- the Unknown Story of Football's True Talent Spotters. It's by Mike Calvin, and it opens up the hidden world of football scouts. Mike is a multi-award winning sports journalist and author, twice named sports writer of the year. He spent 12 years as chief sports writer on the Daily Telegraph and he's a columnist for The Independent on Sunday. So we'll speak to Mike later. First, though, we're going to go to the John Smith Stadium. Uh, Despite Saturday's disappointing 5-1 defeat at Leeds, Huddersfield Town sitting uh, pretty in the moment in the Championship in 14, five places above where they finished last season. Uh, They've been busy in the transfer window as well, bringing in uh, new faces such as Joe Lolly from Kidderminster, ex-Man City striker Harry Bunn and Naki Wells, the most high-profile move of the lot from Bradford. The man who leads the football club's operations is uh, Ross Wilson who uh, has also just been appointed to the Terriers board last month. He began his career at Falkirk and was an executive board member at Watford as well before joining Huddersfield two years ago. We're pleased to say uh, that Ross is on the line right now. Ross, thank you very much for coming on the show. I've described your title there, uh, Director of Football Operations at Huddersfield Town. Uh, But what exactly does that mean? Yeah, what that means is uh, on a day-to-day basis, I oversee the the general running of the football department and everything that entails from a logistical, operational development uh, point of view, which suits in theory um, and hopefully in practice, leave our manager, Mark Robbins, to to get on with all the things that need to go on on the coaching pitch, um, picking a team, making the final decisions on everything on on the technical side, if you like, and just generally supporting him. Um, And then obviously I've got a a big staff here as well as I, as I did at Watford and in the various areas that fall under the football department the academy medical sports science training ground operations player recruitment um, and all of those staff support myself and the manager and, and hopefully developing things uh, for the betterment of the club Very busy man uh, but Ross we're obviously here to, to mainly focus on, on transfers and player recruitment and scouting how um, if you can just because I think so often we, we look at the process of player recruitment in very simplistic terms and you know we don't know the half of what goes into signing a player could you run us through briefly the process from start to finish of bringing a player uh, into the first team at Huddersfield yeah so obviously the, the process always starts at the at the identification stage whereby we we at Huddersfield and again I mentioned Watford it was the same when I was at Watford we've, we've got scouts on the ground on a, on a day-to-day basis out at games um, I think we, we probably cover on average something like 25 games a week uh, with our staff um, constantly feeding reports and so that, that's the first stage of signing a player is, is having those scouts on the ground and building an information base on, on all of the players and uh, the various markets that we're involved in the manager and I talk on a daily basis probably five or six times a day to be honest but it doesn't matter what we're talking about recruitment always comes up and because of that we're always looking at the areas of the squad that he that he wants to enhance the types of players that he wants to recruit and that's always really really important and it's really, really important that our, our scouting staff on the ground understand exactly what our manager wants, not just in terms of the position of the players, but the, the demands that he pushes on on each player in each position. So so that, that's very, very important. Everybody knows that. So then when, when we finished that identification stage and we began to identify some players that may be of interest to us, those players would then pass up the scouting structure. So some of our more senior or full-time Scouting staff would go and cast their eye over the players that's been recommended by our regional staff. And effectively, if the players then pass that test again, that's where myself, the manager, and his coaching staff begin to become involved in the process as well. And we'll go out to, to look at the players that's been recommended, probably at that stage, by, by two, three, or maybe even four different personnel, different staff from the club. Uh, our analysis staff will get involved as well and pulling together some maybe some stats from the players, some video clips on the players, some footage in the players. So, we build we build as big a picture as we possibly can, and then once we once we've decided that that player could potentially play for us, he'll join probably a list of anywhere between three and about eight probably of players in that one particular position that we we would consider a target. Now, obviously, if we're, we're looking for a right back, for example, we're, we're not going to go and sign eight of them. We're going to go and, we're going to go and sign one one that's on that list. But at that list, at any one time, then as I say, there could be anywhere between three and eight. And the manager will decide which one he would prefer. Uh, and then between myself and our, our chief executive, Nigel Clivens, we'll, we'll have spoken to the agent, I'll have spoken to the agent. Um, of all of those players, we'll know the, the financial uh, parameters by which that player hopes to hopes to achieve with a, with a contract at Huddersfield. Obviously, 
um, presuming um, that player's interest in joining us, of course. And then if depending on the player's status with his club, whether it's a loan, whether it's a permanent transfer, whether it's a, a player that's out of contract, whether it's a low transfer fee or a high transfer fee, that really then depends how complicated that that particular transfer would be. And, and then depending on how complicated, I suppose, that, that then um, maps how quickly the transfer can happen. So that's effectively the process you know, right through from, from scouting to um, the senior staff, the manager, myself, um, the financial part with the agent, the financial part with the other club if he's still contracted to another club, and then hopefully, hopefully be before we once we've reached personal term agreement and once we've reached agreement with the other club, then something we always do here is we make sure we meet the player first, and the manager likes to to look at the the player, ask him a few questions, and make sure that the, the type of character that we're going to bring to the club is someone that he thinks he can work with. I mean, it's absolutely fascinating really to hear how how many stages there are in terms of bringing in a player and how many different people are involved, not just on your side, but as you say, on, on the player's side and the other clubs and the agents involved. And it's particularly interesting to consider we've just had the January transfer window and you've got fans up and down the, the nation from the Premier League right down to the, to the bottom tier saying, oh, we need to bring in this player, that player, almost as if it's like all the managers have just got a list, they're going to go on Amazon and just buy them all <laughs> on the last day. I mean, that yeah. that, that yeah, must take a long time, that process. There's so many people involved and you've got to really do your work very thoroughly. Uh, and the notion yeah, of, of, of buying a player on the last day of the window, sort of out of thin air, it kind of make a, makes a mockery, really, of, of, that, of that notion. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would agree with that. What, what I've always said here, I got asked the question when I when I did a similar piece last week, was that if there will there will of course be occasions where where we at this club sign a player in the last day of the transfer window. For example, last season we we thought we'd sign Jermaine Beckford in the last day of the transfer window, but it, it didn't quite work out, and then we signed him a week later. But that didn't mean that we suddenly decided on that day that we were going to sign Jermaine Beckford. We that that just happened to be the the time that it took for that particular player's transfer or transaction to actually reach a point where everybody on and all of the sides was happy that we that we could proceed and equally when I was at Watford we sold Marvin Sorbell at midnight on, on deadline day to Bolton for three and a half million but again the, the discussions didn't start on deadline day they'd be gone for quite some time but that was the day that, that we at Watford felt that we'd reached the, the best value that we could have got for the player so that, that's why it happened on deadline day so I'm not saying that ah, I certainly won't be involved in transfers on deadline day because absolutely will be but that doesn't mean that uh, that's been the day that you've decided to do the transfer. Ross, I wanted to ask briefly about agents, if I could, because I'm a, a Leicester City fan and Nigel Pearson, after our uh, our game at the weekend at Bournemouth, spoke about agents on deadline day trying to kind of stick their noses in, as he put it, and kind of disrupt the preparations or kind of unsettle players, especially on the last day of the window when all this Sky Sports frenzy is whipped up <laughs> about players moving yeah. at short, short term that we've spoken about already. Are they normally a force for good? I understand, obviously, they have a client to represent and you're trying to get a deal that's that's kind of good for both sides but in your experience have you kind of had that issue with kind of agents either on, on the Huddersfield side or on players side just trying to uh, trying to disrupt things a little bit to be honest not, not really uh, Mark Robbins and I were talking about this the other day actually and uh, I think I think when you understand that the job the agents are trying to do and they, they, and they play a pivotal part within the within the recruitment process within the transfer process and I think I mean I've been doing the job just over 10 years now and when you've been doing doing the job, I think you work out very very quickly which agents you can work with, and then there'll be some that you can you just can't work with at all. And then I think as you effectively mold your career, you you know who you're going to work with more often than not. And you're probably talking the phone and an average day maybe I don't know maybe maybe twenty different agents a day. Um, but that's not to say that you're going to be doing deals with twenty agents a day. You 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 know you. But you know who you can trust. You know who you can. Normally, you've worked with agents before. Another thing that I always say as well, and again, this is something that I began doing at Walford, is I think that the worst relationships you can have with agents is when you only deal with them when there's a transaction to be done. So if you're, you're going to sign a player and then you suddenly phone that player's agent up when you've no relationship with them, it can be difficult to build that rapport to get the deal done. And equally with your own players, if they have a club that's coming in for that player, I certainly wouldn't want to know that when the club's coming in. Now, I would like to think that the, the relationship can be as strong as it possibly can with with as many of our players' agents that those agents have a, a relationship with me where they say, by the way, I think this club may come in for for the player in the summer transfer window, for example, and we can begin to prepare for things like that and we can also have early, early discussions of what that evaluation may be, where that transfer may go or whether it's just going to be a complete waste of time. So 
rather than having a bust up with agent when when something happens, you'd like to think you've got a better rapport than that. Do you um do you think that the transfer window is a good thing? And I'm just looking at the players you brought in during the most recent transfer window. Obviously, Naki Wells being the most high profile. How far in advance would you have been looking at signing a player like that? Well, and in, in talking purely in terms of Huddersfield Town, we 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 monitored Naki for about eighteen months. Um, my whole time at the club, Huddersfield Town followed Naki before my time here and equally I was following Naki when I was at Watford as someone that we, we would like to have brought to Watford at the time so both in terms of the club and myself <laughs> would have been nice would have been a nice one yeah um, so yeah purely in terms of this deal and, and, and my involvement from Huddersfield side but we monitored them for about 18 months and we and we, we, we began speaking to Bradford City probably around God, where are we now probably around 7 or 8 weeks ago Ross I'm quite interested in, in the bigger picture when it comes to recruitment as well because obviously not every player that a club buys is going to be a Naki Wells you know club record fee and go straight into the into the first team you know yeah. there'll be there'll be players that you buy who are, who are younger prospects you, you bought Joe Lolly who's come up from non-league and you, you know yeah. players that maybe drop out of Premier League academies who, who you think can have a future in, in the game how does it differ when you're getting a, looking at a player who, who maybe is more of a gamble or more of a, a long-term sort of development player as opposed to someone that's going to come and have an impact straight away yeah well the, the the first thing is when you're you know for example we've got a, a young Danish player that we signed about 12 months ago uh, Philip Billing who joined us from Esberg in the Danish the Danish Premier League and we also signed a young a young 16 year old who's the captain of the Republic of Ireland under under 17 side and those those two were big big signings for us at the time but nobody really knew we were doing them nobody really knew we were making them so you're conducting the the, the negotiation uh, again, with with the former clubs or the current clubs at that time, with their agents because they've got agents at that point as well, and you're going through exactly the same process as you would for to sign a Naki Wells, but you're doing so out of the public spotlight, without speculation, without people phoning you and asking you questions about it every day. So you do it with a bit more pressure, and equally the player can enter the club without that pressure of huge expectation from outside, and the player aren't to come and do ever so well, and they can they can slot into our development programs, work with our staff. And the transition into the club can be can be much smoother than than, than someone like Naki, who thankfully scored he scored two goals in his first four games for us, two in his first two in fact. But the, the, there's immediate pressure on Naki to deliver, and I suppose rightly so when there's a transfer fee given the size that it is. But certainly for the younger players, that would be the biggest difference. Would be the the fact that the transfers negotiated and hopefully concluded away from any media attention and media spotlight, and the player can enter the club and have a a smoother transition in his development path we can be planned in, in much greater detail and without a, without a great rush on him. We talked about expectation there on players but fans are obviously a huge part of football clubs even more so these days and how difficult is it to balance supporter expectations with financial constraints you know Huddersfield don't by any means have the biggest budget in the championship to work with as, as a Leicester fan we've spent a lot of money in the past and we've had to rein our expectations in in, in line to get with financial fair play and various different things how difficult is it to balance those two uh, those two expectations up? Yeah it's really interesting that we're big at Huddersfield in terms of our interaction with our supporters we were fairly open in terms of our social media communication. Uh, not that we're going to go and give away you know, secrets of what we're doing and things like that, but we are, myself, Nigel, our, our chief executive, Sean Jarvis, our, our commercial director, we're all, we're all on Twitter, we're all open to fans' question and sometimes criticism, I suppose, uh, and we're all very, very open to that, and we try and be as transparent as we can. And equally, we, we have a lot of fans' meetings and, and things like that, which is, which is something that can really, really help you get that message across. Um, and, re- and really, again, use that word that I used previously when I was talking about agents. This time with fans, you, c- you can build a rapport and, and I suppose almost a trust in that then that the fans can see what the plan is and hopefully you can blow away some myths as well, which is something we try and do here if, if the fans are suddenly, you know, sending us questions, asking us about something which is completely false, then we'll, we'll let them know it's completely false. Where, where we can, of course, if something confidential, then we can. Um, but we, we try and do that as much as we possibly can. And, I think keeping fans, I don't like the word educated, but certainly keeping fans up to speed with what it is you're trying to do as a club and bringing them on board. And we, we've certainly received some really, really positive um, feedback and response from our fans. And I think they're, they're really, really with the plan and they understand what our direction of travel is as a football club. Ross, at the start when you described all the various things you do in your role at Huddersfield, there are many people, I'm sure, who have similar roles in, in, in various clubs around this country. You hear the term director of football used a lot and... 
technical directors, sporting directors, and, and it seems yeah. often uh, when you have these people in these positions, particularly you know in the more high-profile roles in, in the Premier League, a lot of the media, a lot of the former pros who who were around say twenty, thirty years ago, ex-managers, instinctively they start sort of raising their eyebrows and saying, well, what's going on? Is this person meddling in the first team? Is Who's in charge? Is it good for the manager? Do we need the old traditional one manager controls the whole club sort of thing? But it seems to me that just from hearing what you described, all the things you do, there's so many different facets to running a football club in this day and age. The idea of one man running a football club, Mark Robbins, for example, at Huddersfield, running everything completely, he just wouldn't be able to do it. It would send him to an early grave. So <laughs> surely this... this we shouldn't look at this uh, a role like yours, you know, as something unusual. It should, you know, more and more is going to become the norm, isn't it? Yeah, I, I agree with all that. I think, yeah, but obviously, I would because I do the job. I suppose, <laughs> cancer, but the you know, the bottom line with this, um, I spoke to someone who's connected to Leeds United in their boardroom on Saturday, actually, um, before the game, um, and, and what I was saying about that was a similar question came up, just in general conversation, and. What I think is, I think when when the role becomes really, really prominent within within the English society or probably the British society, I don't think people quite understand it or really get what it's all about. So I, I for example, I've never taken the title director of football. I don't like it because it just doesn't go down well. So um, although I'm a director of the club, then my title's head of football operations. And I, and I take that one deliberately. I think what you've got to do in the job, in my view, is, is do the job in the background let everybody know that the manager is the person that makes the final decisions on players in, players out, team selection, everything like that. There's no meddling or anything like that going on. I think that's really, really important. But to do the job in the background, do the job as a, as a support structure, don't be someone that wants to be getting the pictures taken and appearing in the, the front of the, the website and things like that. that. That's not my scene and it's certainly not the way I like to go around things. But I think that's probably what what fans don't like. They like the manager to to be the front man and that, that's certainly how I like to operate and how I've operated all my career Whilst there's been many many column inches and, and tweets and discussions and forums about uh, your, your old club Watford and we, we've talked about it many times on this podcast over the last uh, 18 months or so since the Pozzo family yeah. took, took the club over there was you know a change in the way that the, the recruitment was looked at specifically and changing the way the, the club was run totally. Uh, a lot of yeah. loan players coming from their network across Udinese, Granada, across the world, all the scouts they have. What, what's your view, as somebody that used to work for Watford under a different regime, what, what is your view of how the Pozzos do their business? And do, do you think it's something that we'll see perhaps replicated more and more in this country if it was to be a success at Watford? Well, I, I certainly hope the Watford model will be a success. And I think, I, I know things maybe aren't going as well this year as, as the people that Vicky George would like. I'm, I'm in contact with Watford still on a daily basis with different people at the club. But um, I was part of a small group of people that brought the Pottsville family to the club um, because we, we had to find a, we had to find a buyer at the time because the, the club wasn't in a, in a great ownership place and we, we, had to, we had to change things. So when we found the, the Pottsville family and, and the Pottsville family's interest in Watford, we we thought it could be a really, really good match for what the football club could potentially achieve. The model the model last year worked really, really well with a, with a couple of players, um, in particular uh, Vidra and Alman Abdi, who's, who's hardly played this year, been been key, key players there. And it was always a plan that, that that would combine with some UK, strong UK recruitment as well. And Nathaniel Shalabar came in um, just as I was leaving Watford last year and made a, made a big, big impression as well. So that worked well. And as I say, I know it's not worked quite as well this year in, in terms of results and things, but but hope, hopefully it can it can get going again. The Portugal family are great, great integrity. The models are very very intelligent one. There's a lot of thought goes into it. I'm talking from the Indonesia end here, um, and I think I think that the Watford Football Club can only get stronger under their ownership because they un, they understand um, what needs to be done to be successful in football in the modern day. And the club's certainly in a better place now than it was than it was two years ago. That's for sure. Thanks very much for coming on the show, Ross. Great to talk to you. Much appreciated. Uh, That is uh, Ross Wilson. Fascinating stuff. He's the director and head of football operations at Huddersfield Town on our big scouting special. Next, we're going to speak to the author of a book which opens up the hidden world of football scouts. It's called The Nowhere Men.
Right, so to a man whose first book came out more than 30 years ago now. He's a multi-award winning sports journalist and author, twice named Sports Writer of the Year and twice named Sports Reporter of the Year, the British Press Awards. And he's worked in more than 80 countries, can you believe, covering multiple World Cups and Olympic Games. Also spent over a decade as Chief Sports Writer on the Daily Telegraph and he's now a columnist for The Independent on Sunday. It is, of course, Mike Calvin, author of The Nowhere Men, the unknown story of football's true talent spotters and we are very happy to say that Mike is on the phone right now. Mike, firstly, uh, thank you very much for coming on the show and I guess the first question I need to ask you has to be what motivated you to uh, write a book all about football scouting in the first place? Uh, well, Mark, after that introduction, I suppose it's because I wanted to, to remain young. You made me feel about <laughs> 150 there. Um, Sorry, mate. To be serious, um, basically sport these days and football in particular is basically under the microscope to such an extent that it's very difficult to find subjects which haven't been poured over um, ad nauseam for years. Um, scouting really hadn't been touched. It's one of the few areas of football, although it's central to the mythology of the game, hadn't really been looked at. And it was fascinating to me because you know everyone knows what a scout does, but no one really knows who they are, why they do it, how they do it. And it's, it was really an insight into a culture which, although is sort of central to the, the, the star system of football, it is pretty um, mundane in many ways, and it's certainly not glamorous. Reading, reading the book, Mike, there's, there's many threads and, and, and fascinating stories and characters that you come across through the book, but there's also this kind of sort of contrast between two different styles and approaches to scouting. You've got very much the old school scout who relies on, on his eyes and his ears and his feel for the, for the game and his experience and his know-how, and, and then perhaps the newer, perhaps younger uh, professional who's, who's involved in scouting who relies more heavily on statistics, databases, on analytics, and there is a feeling perhaps that the, the new could be ushering out the old, but you know, do, you, do you feel that there is very much a room for, for both of these approaches still in the modern game? I do, yeah. I, I think that the difference is that uh, if you look at them in isolation, the old school culture is you go out with these guys and you can see that they feel the game in their bones. And uh, some of them have been around for decades, longer even than, than, a, than a veteran hack like me. So you would go out with a guy called, let's, as an example, go out with a guy called John Griffin, who is one of the most venerable members of the profession. He's 73 now, uh, currently at Crystal Palace. Um, he spent most of his life, to quote him, digging around in the dirt, looking at non-league football. And there's an intuitive process which goes on. So, for instance, he discovered Stan Collymore playing for Stafford Rangers, and he knew what he'd seen without Stan even kicking a ball. He saw him run out onto the pitch, and something deep within him told him that he was a player. Um, so you have that um, extreme where that is now balanced against some of the younger guys who are coming through. They are statistically driven. They are technologically um, equipped. They are scientifically driven to a degree as well. And what we are looking for, and I think it will happen, I, I can see it beginning to happen slowly anyway. There's a new breed of younger scouts or, or recruitment analysts who are coming through. They come through university programs, sports coaching sites. What, the bizarre as it seems, one of my sons is, is um, he's the head of um, analytics at Northampton, and he's come from a university background. It's a tough job. Yeah. <laughs> Analyzing a lot of yeah. defensive issues, I can imagine, <laughs> at the moment. Yes, it's been quite an interesting season. Well, he was, he was headhunted by A.D. Boothroyd um, about four months ago. He was at Brentford. But people like him, 23, 24, 25 years old, they have a coaching background, they have a science background, and they have an eye for a player, but they also have the IT skill. So it's the eye and IT. And I think there's a sort of a prototypical scout of, of the future beginning to emerge. The interesting thing is the broader point about the whole transfer market and the whole recruitment market now. It has been skewed massively, I think, to the detriment of, of, of certainly football league clubs by uh, EP3, the Elite Player Performance Plan, which I think is a regressive um, force 
leading as progress it enables the big clubs who essentially wrote the plan to actually go into academy structures of progressive football league clubs and basically plunder them for peanuts. That needs to change and I would hope that the, the new commission, that much derided commission instituted by Greg Dyke would actually assist that process. One of the main stories that you touched on uh, in the book is the progress of Jack Butland, who's obviously been a player that comes from relative obscurity from Cheltenham and then playing to England in a a very short space of time. There's not many players that that go from that that level of League Two football up to international level so so quickly. Do you think clubs need to take more chances with players such as Jack? And, you know, is this something that's going to come more from examining that lower uh, end of the football league spectrum and picking up gems like that, do you think? Well, I think with, with, with Jack, I think he was always on the radar of the biggest clubs anyway. I think the interesting the sort of story behind that story, if you like, was in the course of doing the book, I was on the road for about 15 months, and my mentor was a chap named uh, Mel Johnson. Now, Mel's background, he was Chief Scout of Queen's Park Rangers, Tottenham. Uh, he's now a senior scout at Liverpool. And he took me out, and it was the second game that we went out together. It was an under-19 international at Brisbane Road, where England were playing the Czech Republic. And he turned to me after a couple of minutes and said, look, look, you know, you haven't got it. You just don't, you're making the mistake that every coach and manager who comes out with me makes. And I said, well, what's that? It's, it's, well, actually, you're watching the game. And I said, well, <laughs> I said, well hang on a second. <laughs> you know, I've been doing that for more years than I care to remember. And he said, no, what you're doing is you're following the flow of play. You're watching the ball. You're watching what the systems. You're a scout. You have to watch your man and your man alone. And that night with Jack Butland, we went to, uh, it was a Friday night game uh, when he was on loan at Cheltenham at uh, Roots Hall when they were playing Southend. And that's when it all clicked into place for me. There was this sort of moment of epiphany where Jack, frankly, had a complete nightmare. They lost 4-0. He was culpable for the goals, or certainly desperately three of them. But there was a moment in that process where they went 4-0 down after about 60, 65 minutes. And he was in the real world. Just watching him, your world contracts just just to look at this guy. And you realise then there was a little boy in a man's world because he was 18, 19 at the time. And when the fourth goal went in, the defenders who basically had had enough of him by this time, had turned their back and they were walking back towards the centre circle. And he stood near the penalty spot. And gradually, he pulled the neckband of his shirt up and started biting it like a little child, basically. (laughs) Uh, And at that moment, I realised, as I said, there's the little boy in a man's world. The interesting thing about that is that the then chief scout of Birmingham City, who were obviously at that stage his parent club, a guy called Ewan Chester. Now, Ewan is now Chief Scout of Fulham. Uh, sorry, at, um, at uh, Norwich, where he's worked with um, Chrissy Hewton. Now, that evening, uh, we were on the way home. Uh, Mel Johnson had a text from uh, Jack's agent to say, oh, how did it go? And there was, a, there was a very brief text back basically saying, just don't ask. But Ewan had got in touch with uh, Chrissy Hewton that night, uh, who was then a manager at, at Birmingham, Dave Watson, who was then the goalkeeping coach, had already been in touch with Jack Butland. And the next, by the next morning, uh, he was already doing extra sessions, or had arranged extra sessions. And although that put Liverpool off, uh, because the video evidence of his um, indiscretions were, was basically on people's, or on people's laptops within hours. So it's, it's a really... It's a really interesting process the one thing about that thing that that taught me above anything else is that it's a very individual process and you have to you cannot make snap judgments on one night like so for instance on that night that was the ninth uh, that was the ninth time that mel had seen jack barland and in a strange way he'd formed a relationship with him in his own mind because when the fourth goal went in absolutely mel was absolutely devastated he, he just sort of said, oh, oh, Jack, Jack, what a nightmare. And it was as if he was almost like talking about his own son. So it's a strange process. One of the great things I think that, that came out of the book is the humanity of the process because these guys, 
in many cases are they make they can make make millions of pounds and they can certainly inform decisions which cost millions of pounds. Yet the vast majority of scouts are paid buttons, they're paid forty P a mile. So it's a very, very interesting world, a very strange world, uh, a very fascinating world. It, it, fascinating indeed. And, you know, it's interesting you, you say that you, you had a moment of epiphany and it clicked for you. And since reading the book, whenever I've been to a few, uh, few Watford games since, and I've, for little portions of the match, decided to just focus on one player and try and yeah. see what it's like. And you do. We had a new, a new signing you played on, on Sunday against Brighton, Daniel Tozer, and I thought I'd watch him and just see if I can pick up anything. And you do notice little ticks, little movements, little gestures to other players who kind of tells you a little bit more than if you were just following the ball. It, I'll tell you it's fascinating. who the best scouts would be, those cameramen who just do the player cam. Yeah. The ones on Sky that just yeah. follow one yeah. player around. Good way to make a bit of extra money, maybe. Well, I, I was just going to um, ask, uh, Mike, given how close we, we've just been to the transfer, window and we've had Ross on Ross Wilson on earlier on and what you were just touching on it there in terms of the the amount of work and hours and hours and hours and games that goes into identifying targets for football clubs and mm. you, seemingly you've got fans though you know and, and the general football media and ex-pros and everyone who comments on it sort of saying this club needs to sign that player this player this you know as, almost as if there's a shopping list out there where they can just go and pick one and, and choose it on the day on, on January the 31st and, and everything's everything's okay this takes a very long time and do, you, do you think that fans kind of expectations uh, upon the managers who you know ultimately it's all the, always the manager who gets it in the neck if a player is isn't brought in or the wrong players are perceived to have been brought in. Should we really be looking at recruitment in, in a completely different light? Well, I think you have to understand it's a, it's a much more sophisticated process than, than waking up at 7 o'clock in the morning on January the um, 31st, looking in the shaving mirror and thinking, oh, well, I'm a football manager, I'm going to go and buy someone today. Mm. It doesn't work like that. It's a very long-winded process. The best clubs actually recruit six 12 or 18 months in advance there is a structure to it which you know it, it, it has to go beyond blind panic there is a lot of that and it's a strange one I, I tend to agree with Arsene Wenger that I think the January transfer window should be scrapped um, I can't see what purpose it serves other to enrich agents who, who frankly don't need enriching it's a very strange process you have this sort of delusional sort of parallel universe you've got these ITK accounts probably run by spotting teenagers in their bedrooms, um, you know, putting out absolute piffle, which people believe because they want to believe in the uh, the romance, if you like, of their club being uh, around to pick up that bargain that no one else can can pick up, and. Basically, if you're, if you're a sensible club and a well-run club, you don't get drawn into stuff like that. You have a much more strategic approach. Um, and I found it was really quite interesting that the market, such as it was, um, certainly in the Premier League, was driven by fear this time. So you had the Fulhams of this world, the Palaces of this world, spending a lot of money and getting a lot of players in. I think, interesting. I did a radio program last night where Sky Andrew came on, the, the agent, and he made a very good point that there are more and more now. It's, it's a loan process. And if you look around, you know, you have some absurd spectacles. If, let's take Tom Ince as a good example, who, you know, let's, let's, let's part for one moment the fact that his father was the manager and was acting more like his agent. But the fact that you had a player being sort of just uh, going around like a sort of a, a Miss Blackpool con- competition <laughs> all around the country. He eventually uh, signed a short-term uh, loan deal at um, Crystal Palace. Blackpool get a loan fee around, I don't know, about a million pounds, something like that. He's free in the summer to go and um, make sure that he'll never have to work again after he finishes his football career. So that's where it's going now. Yeah, I think you know you're going to have the occasional huge transfer, but by and large, is going to be a much more short-term, desperation-driven process. What I fear for the, for the football league clubs is one, one of their sources of income, i.e. selling players, is becoming less and less of a, an opportunity for them now. One, because of EP3, as I said, but also there is a, there, there is a, a general relaxation reluctance to actually gamble on football league players now you know I, I, for the life of me 
I, I can look at uh, a Jordan Rhodes, and I can, you know, anyone, any, any, anyone listening to this podcast would be able to say, well, okay, this is what he can't do, and it, that drives what that drives a lot of scouts mad. What can he do? What is he good at? Well, he's very good at scoring goals. So it's the sort of uh, the Charlie Austin syndrome. Why isn't he giving him a ch- given a chance? So, you know, there is some talent out there. Whether or not it, it gets the respect it deserves is another matter. Mike, just just briefly, finally, I, I would like to get your thoughts on uh, something we asked Ross Wilson earlier on, and he used to uh, be employed in a similar role to what he is now at Huddersfield by Watford mm-hmm. yourself. Once upon a time, where uh, where was a Watford fan? Uh, mm-hmm. You're not anymore. It's, that's another story for for another time. Um, <laughs> But obviously Watford, in terms of recruitment, have been a big story over the last 18 months in, in the Football League. The system that they've got it was, at the time, alien to really to, to English football. You know, it's been relatively successful in Italy and, and in Spain. Uh, it was very successful for Watford last year, not so much this year. Uh, what, are your, what are your thoughts on the, sort of the Pozzo system, and do you think that could possibly be replicated at other clubs in the future? But I think the, the potential for, for duplication is limited because there are very few clubs uh, in world football, who are essentially you know run in the in the way that Udinese are maybe sort of people like Vila Real, a couple of the Portuguese clubs maybe. Essentially, Udinese is a is a football supermarket if you like. They have uh, numerous players, and I, I I fell out fairly spectacularly with most Watford fans, where I was someone who. I was a ball boy at the club, for heaven's sake, when uh, they were in the old third division. And what uh, what struck me about the Pozzo, the dangers of the Pozzo regime, is that there is no identity with a football club anymore. You basically get um, Joe Blow coming in from from Italy, or uh, the, they are there. If you take Vidra as an example, he fulfilled the strategy by going in, scoring goals, being the championship player of the year, gets, gets his move to West Brom, using you know, the Pozzos, pick up, what was it, three million or whatever it was, but he, 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 he'd done his job for them. He'd made them, a, uh, he'd made them some money. My, view, my sort of instinct about this is that a football club is more than an ATM, more than a money machine. It is something which... Uh, and it's something, you know, maybe this harks back a bit to the, the romance of the scouts that I went around with. A football club is the extension of collective ambition, a community's ambition, a community's identity. Football clubs are about the fans, or they should be about the fans. Increasingly, we live in a world, you know, I spent the weekend, I did my column at the weekend on Leeds United, and you know, I, I, I've spent some, a lot of time with, with, with Brian McDermott, I know his staff very well. Nigel Gibbs, an excellent coach, is number two. John Goodman, who does all the fitness work, is a really excellent guy. Now, I look at what's happening to a big football club like that. I look at what's happening to other football clubs who are essentially hijacked by business principles, by businessmen who follow a business strategy. Now, I'm sure Watford fans wouldn't mind that if if he gets them in the Premier League. I'm, you know, I'm a conscientious objector to that. I want more from a football club and from my football than a cheque at the end of the day. I don't care how much money a, a, a football club makes. All I want is what a football club can be, and that is essentially a fanfare for the, for the common man. I don't want it to be a nice little learner businessman. Fascinating stuff. Mike, thanks uh, very much for coming on. Nice to talk to you. No worries. Mate. I much appreciate that. Is uh, Mike Calvin, award-winning sports journalist and author plus columnist uh, in The Independent on Sunday. And just a reminder, the Nowhere Men still available, Mike? It is, sir. Yeah. Yeah, it's so very well, thankfully. And um, uh, the reviews have been fantastic. And um, yeah, Bye, bye, bye. <laughs> Good stuff. Thanks, mate. And now it's time for my club, the bit of the show where we give Football League fans 125 seconds to tell us all about their side, all to celebrate the 125th anniversary of the Football League. And today the focus is on Chesterfield. This is We Are Going Up, my club in 125 seconds. Hello, I'm Adam Marsden and my club at Chesterfield. So, Adam, do you remember your first game at Saltergate? 
I do remember my first game at Saltergate. It was a Kevin Randall testimonial game between Chesterfield and Sheffield United. Unfortunately, we lost it 1-0 to a goal by a guy called Carlos Saba. And who of the many years that you've been a Chesterfield fan would you say is your favourite player of all time? Uh, I had loads of favourite players. My very first favourite player was Alan O'Hare, but uh, he left quite soon after I started supporting the club. But I'd probably say my favourite player altogether was Mark Hallett. I'm I'm normally the bearer of bad news. So what was the worst moment you've had as a Chesterfield fan? The heartache of relegation. um, The last game of the season when we were sat there with it all in the balance and unfortunately we lost the game and it doomed us to relegation, especially after such a great season in the Capital One Cup as well, which was then the Carling Cup. So was that last season? No, it was quite a while ago. Um, last season was, well, we expected relegation after the JPT, but it was the 06-07 season when we beat the likes of Wolves, we beat the likes of uh, Man City and West Ham, and we lost out on penalties to a Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank penalty against Charlton. Mm. And uh, that was how we left the uh, Capital One Cup, which was again then the Carling Cup, and we got oh, relegated yeah. later that season. What's your favourite Chesterfield goal, Adam, of all time? Um, it will be the second season I was in the club we had to beat Luton to stay up and it was relying on other results elsewhere and it was the day that Glynhurst scored in the 89th minute that saved us ex-Berry legend of sorts Uh, and Adam finally question on on this season you are going very well in League 2 at the moment but so are a number of other clubs Uh, it's going to be tight but do you think you can go up? Uh, Yeah I've got confidence that we can go up from the beginning we were one of the favourites along with Portsmouth and Fleetwood but thing with us is at Christmas time we start to get to the point where we just give up think we've done it already and the second half of the season is the worst half of the season for us but we've started brightly in 2014 and hopefully we can keep the form up and go up hopefully in automatic promotion because I couldn't be done with uh, the playoffs and maybe two visits to Wembley Adam thank you very much your two minutes is up my club in 125 seconds we are going up we've got the football league covered so there'll be another my club on the show next week and just a reminder if you want to hear those two interviews in full again with Ross and Mike the full versions are at soundcloud.com slash wagyu podcast so as it is a bit of a recruitment scouting special we should uh, before we uh, get into Leeds and uh, and all the weekend's action talk a bit about the transfer window are there any sort of big deals which which stand out or bargains that you think have been pulled off by uh, football league clubs there's uh, a few uh, clubs that have been quite busy Wolves is quite interesting Jim because they've brought Leon Clark back from uh, Coventry for 750 grand but at the same time they've got rid of Wayne Hennessy for 3 million to yes. Palace Lee Griffiths has gone to Celtic and Kevin Doyle has gone to QPR so a lot of the big earners have been shipped out by uh, I think that was probably the idea wasn't it get the big wage by Kenny off the, uh, off the wage bill which is fair enough but three millions of eye-water in fee for Wayne Hennessy who's not got the best injury record in the world he's normally uh, sidelined for a couple of months a season at least so three millions is a lot of money but yeah um, the Lee Tomlin one I was quite interested in because he is by all accounts so he's gone from Peterborough to uh, Middlesbrough didn't he that was a literally a deadline day special an 11 o'clock one by all accounts probably one of the most talented players at Peterborough but one of the most volatile and potentially meltdown-esque <laughs> players you're going to have. So it's going to be interesting to see how he copes with that step up because, you know, although Peterborough have played at a championship level several times over the last kind of 10 years or so, they've been that yo-yo club. It's going to be interesting to see how he fits in it at Borough. I think Craig Davies going to Preston's a, mm. a decent coup for Preston. Scored in his debut as well. Absolutely. Why are Bolton letting him on go on loan when they're struggling? Um, I, well, I don't know. Bolton have had a, a, a as has always often been the case the last few years, a high turnover. They've had a Shipped few, out in few, Gog, haven't they? Swansea. Have come in, yeah, and Gog's gone. Well, that's a great deal for Bolton. Um, <laughs> Liam Trotter's gone in, come in Liam from Liam Trotter, Millwall. I think, is a very good player. Yeah. He, he was linked with Premier League clubs not so long ago and, and he impressed that on his debut uh, at the weekend uh, Djokovic and Jan Kogan uh, they've brought in uh, to go yeah. up front uh, different players I think from, from Craig Davies certainly uh, but I just think Craig Davies well, he's proven himself to be capable of scoring goals at championship level so it's a good signing for Preston for them looking to push on uh, and cement in a playoff place in the second half of the season Talking about uh, Tomlin leaving Peterborough they've brought in a defender from Hartlepool Jack Baldwin for half a million quid That's big money for Hartley, money, isn't it? money That's I mean impossible yeah. to turn that kind of money down It certainly is and um, we were talking earlier, weren't we, about the British Ambalonga transfer earlier mm. in the season where they paid, what was it, in the region of about a million pounds? So they're not, they're not averse to spending big, big money on players. But just one for me as well, Jack Hobbs getting full-time mm. transfer from Hull to uh, to Forest, and they showed how much they missed him, I think, in the first 
kind of 60 minutes against Watford on Thursday night but mm. then obviously came back but he's he's a huge, there, like, a huge yeah, <laughs> he's a huge buy for them because he's, um, he's an absolute rock at the back in League 2 uh, Northampton have signed Emile Sinclair he's been around the block a bit hasn't he in the last yeah, couple of bit. years Gary Alexander has gone Mike to Mike Calvin's uh, son responsible for that <laughs> yeah. uh, Gary Alexander has gone to Burton Albion and uh, Danny Nardiello we've signed permanently uh, Rotherham to Bury which is a great deal for us he's the, you've it, signed the most players yeah it doesn't surprise me because everyone we brought in in the summer was crap so we, <laughs> we shift them out Rip and, it up and start again. Yeah, so, uh, well, it was Blackwell, wasn't it? So, anyway, um, right, let's uh, let's talk about the story of the week in the Football League. I mean, I don't even know how you, where you want to start to sum this up. Leeds United, one of you, take the baton, run with it. What have you made of uh, it It's all? an absolute farce, isn't it? It, it, it is completely ridiculous. And I, I think it. there's half of me, though, that and, and half of us, I think, who look at these stories and, and aren't that surprised because we have seen farcical owners... You know, in recent years, yeah. Blackburn, Cardiff immediately spring to mind, and other Portsmouth and other other places, uh, and it has sort of become the norm, the late <laughs> the latest debacle of ownership, at, yeah. foreign ownership at a club. But it just shouldn't be that way. I mean, regardless of the fact that it's a football club, and th- this isn't a way to run it. To, to you know, if you're a business taking over another business and you went in and just you know fired the boss or a number of employees and then when actually from, from the next your, day or when, you got your lawyer to do it before you yeah, actually exactly. taken over I mean, yeah. I mean it's, it's and, and decided that you didn't want to do it. I mean it's, it's a complete and utter you know makes a mockery of the club and it, it's uh, you know Brian McDermott is a, he's a very good man uh, I don't know him personally but this, this is my perception of him from, from his interviews I've heard him interviewed a number of times and he seems to be a very honest manager he doesn't hide behind cliches or behind platitudes he will always come out and, and give interesting explanations for you know why they've been successful or, or why they've failed. He doesn't and he doesn't hide and it's just very honest assessments. And, isn't and it, I, don't, I don't think he deserved to be treated like this. Well, and, yes. and, and I'm you know he's back now. That's well, the thing. Yeah. He That's said the he said uh, Monday as uh, as we record in a press conference today, uh, walking away would have been the easiest thing to do. I wasn't interested in that. There's no way I would leave the group of staff I have here and the supporters. Um, so uh, Chilino is the guy that's trying to buy the club, yeah. which has now got to go to the football league. And this is quite interesting. I read this that Sean Harvey is now the chief executive of the Football League yeah. and he spent nine years at Leeds with Ken Bates so he's kind of compromised by this and it's yeah, just going to get bit. extremely messy isn't it it for... is it is indeed and he doesn't know whether he's going to be there for the next game does he he's already said that well he's yeah Yeovil you know, on if, Saturday if that if that I mean, he said Festa was at training. Is, he said Festa was at training. Yeah. on Monday. So. They've made no secret of the fact they want him to take it's over. Not, it is not the right way to do things. No. We were talking about Watford earlier, and for all the criticism they've got, at least they, you know, they they did got got rid of Sean Dyche in a reasonably dignified way in pre-season. Yeah, I think they were quite open and honest about it. Whereas this guy, you know, Brian he, Brian McDermott, hears it from someone as you said that he's never spoken to before. Then he comes back, he gets a text, he's finding he doesn't out even hear stuff that on he's his reinstated. It's, yeah, he reads a news story about it. Still being in charge. It's, it's, you've got your fans outside the ground trying trying not let to the not let the uh, sponsors threatening is, to walk out. Right, it's it. shameful behaviour. It starts you off on the wrong foot. You'll be your reputation is tarnished before you've even begun. And and by all accounts, I mean this guy is a bit of of an eccentric uh, yeah. Cellini but he's been at Cagliari for a long time and they've had some some real success relatively speaking in, yeah. in Serie A so it's not like he he shouldn't necessarily be completely looked upon as, no, as he's as, not as a football novice is he like he's not unaware of no him. Despite you know. all this, though, they won five-one. So and exactly, well, probably, keep, probably keep sacking him on Fridays and reinstating him on Mondays. One interesting little fact about Cellini: you know, he's a very very superstitious man. Uh, he is completely uh, this to do with some sort of uh, I, I think it comes from some Italian tradition or, or some sort of religion or, or something uh, he, he has a fear of the number 17 there's in, in Calgary's ground there isn't a 7 not seat a 17, 17 in any of them it's 16B who's number 17 baseball um, there isn't any okay. and when they, they had a game uh, against someone who was pos- like moved a postponement it got moved to a, to a 17th of the month uh, and he said to counterbalance that he got all the fans to turn up wearing purple which is supposedly good luck to counterbalance the, the bad luck of playing on the 17th and the team won. But the number Christ. 17 uh, at Leeds United is Michael Brown. <laughs> Doomed from the very start, Sorry, that, that arrangement, isn't it? Um, at the top of the table, uh, Leicester. Two wins this week uh, away at Birmingham. Bournemouth, nine league wins in a row. First time in your history. Ten yeah. points clear, 13 points clear of third place. Even you cannot balls this up. Yeah, we've been saying this for weeks, but it's still going to happen. No, no. We're, I'm <laughs> and who have you got next, Jim? Yes, Watford Saturday. on Saturday at our place. Are you coming? No, we've no. Got, I, I'm never going to there again. Never no, I've, we've spoken about four, your heartache at the KP yeah. before. But I, this 
this time. We, I think uh, after a good performance against Brighton, you, know, you never know. Not much pressure on us. It's going to be a very interesting game, I think. Yeah, mm. we'll see. Tell you what was a hell of a game on Saturday. It was 3 all Loftus yeah. Road, QPR what a Burnley. That was. Um, Harry uh, has had a busy week <laughs> of bringing in six players. <laughs> Doyle, Maiga, Will Keane have all come in loan. Uh, obviously, I think Gary needs to listen to this podcast and <laughs> <laughs> learn a thing or two. Yeah. Uh, big blow losing, obviously, Charlie Austin. But um, enough about QPR strikers. What a strike force. Burnley is at the moment I mean the link up between the two of them on Saturday I mean the the quality of the goals the Ings volley for the first goal the Uh, move which led to the second goal the third goal he knew exactly where he was going to be and just slotted him in I mean they are just outstanding I'm quite interested to know your opinion on this I was thinking about this today if it is going to be a straight shootout between those two clubs for the second automatic promotion spot I know it's a bit early to say that who do you think is going to have a better shot at it who who do you fancy at this stage my heart Every part of me wants Wanted Burnley to, to go yeah. up. Uh, just, you know, for the great job that Sean Dyche has done. You know, the, like you said, they play some really good football. Everyone everyone loves sort of, a, of an under an underdog type. But I think perhaps QPR's quality might tell. But having said that, you know, look at the game. Burnley really did deserve to, to yeah. win that game, I think, actually. And they had the a end, chance. Was it Danny Ings as well? Yeah, it's 3-2. Mm, yeah, where he put it wide, didn't Lovely he? little yeah. move inside yeah, and just it. sent it past yeah. the yeah. end of the post. The thing, the thing I'd say on this, I was talking to someone about this uh, at the weekend you just feel that if Burnley don't get up this season just like Watford didn't last season and other clubs Blackpool the year before a couple of years before that you know Reading have been up there and stuff you have moments in time you have a season every now and again forgive me while I open my can of coke by the way sorry <laughs> every now and again clubs like Burnley you know, medium sized clubs with, with, with limited expectations will have a great season where they'll get a good crop of players and a good manager and they'll have the chance of going up Palace last season another example you've got to take it when you get that chance you've got to take it because if they don't take it Sean Dyche could well go in the summer yeah. people will want him Danny Ings could go Boats could go yeah. if you do well in the championship and you don't go up the vultures will circle mm. it's very hard to come back next season they're not a club of significant size able to turn down big bids either they've had no. to sell their best mm. to you know they're the previous two seasons they've had to sell their best players Charlie Austin Jay Rodriguez the season before that two other clubs either in the same division or in the Premier League exactly. so they're, they're not going to keep either of those exactly. Ings will look at Rodriguez and think he's, he's yeah. going to go to the World Cup well exactly yeah. so what a what can I do? Stuart, yeah. Stuart, Stuart Gray's got the job at Sheffield Wednesday. <laughs> Hallelujah. Head coach, though. So, uh, no. Well, it's near and it different. Uh, they won 1-0 against Barnsley. Chris Maguire with a late goal. Three red cards in that game. Jermaine Johnson, Jacob Melly sent off in bad tackles. Emmanuel Frimpong. Oh, what a donut <laughs> I mean, that man is. So, uh, obviously, you see the tweet that you wrote last week, <laughs> which is, how am I going to draw girls now? Yeah. Like, now he plays for Barnsley instead of Arsenal. Now he, now he plays for Barnsley. Yeah. So then he goes straight into the lineup. He uh, commits some bad foul. He's warned about it. It's 30 seconds later. He didn't look very happy as well in his same, picture with the no. shirt when he held up the shirt. <laughs> yeah. He looked very miserable. <laughs> same, yeah. same foul again into the book. And the second yellow was one of the oh, most just... ludicrous tackles. And um, I love this tweet from Michael Cox, Zona Mark, and he said that um, Frimpong was sent off on his first Arsenal League start and he was sent off on his first Barnsley start. Football's equivalent of a golden pair, yeah. which I did he's, enjoy. He's got custard for brains, that lad. Ha- that's not going to last ridiculous. very long, is it, him there? You just can't see it. <laughs> going to get sent out for three weeks so he doesn't have to play okay right let's move on uh, League One uh, Brentford dropped points away at Shrewsbury Tom Eaves with a good uh, equaliser late on Wolves are up to second they beat Bradford uh, did uh, anyone see Clem's feature on Rotherham Orient on the Football League show Steve Evans when he walks in <laughs> He's got his legs on the desk and his hands behind his head. It's so David Brent. Oh, it's unbelievable. It's and on the lockers in the Rotherham changing room you can on the close up they've got these stickers which say Project Promotion oh. The Sequel <laughs> I mean, if that isn't oh, Brent, superb. I don't know what is. Um, yeah, go and have a look at that. Anyway, Did he play the guitar at any point just to round it off? <laughs> they, no, he didn't, sadly. But uh, they won the game. They beat Orient. They were out of the promotion spots for they the first did. time all yeah. season. And um, Ben Pringle, I think, the Rotherham midfielder. Whenever, whenever I watch Football League, yeah. he's, he's excellent. Mm. He's definitely one to watch. Uh, down at the bottom, very good weekends for Bristol City and Crew. Both won Sheffield United, though. Oh. Three defeats in four. They lost 3 0 at Crew. Um, and um, yeah, they're, they're, they're down to 23rd. I know they're playing at Fulham on Tuesday in the FA Cup replay but their league form is a real cause for concern at this absolutely. stage absolutely and you, you know it's, it's a situation we've seen time and time again you'll see a team like Sheffield United come ever so close to beating Premier League Fulham a few weeks ago and then they can't beat fellow strugglers <laughs> like Crew in the league and it, and it baffles you on the surface but you know, and, and who's to say they won't beat Fulham 
and and end up mm. you know really mm. struggling in the league. It's it's, yeah. it's a catch twenty two situation in some ways. Uh, resort of the weekend in League Two was York winning two one at Fleetwood with uh, Wes Fletcher's uh, late winner. Uh, Chesterfield atop. Uh, they won against Bristol Rovers on Saturday. Uh, Scunny is second, and Oxford are third. Uh, they brought in David Connolly on loan from Portsmouth. He must be yeah. loving that. He swapped a relegation battle for a, a promotion, <laughs> a promotion push. push. And he scored on his debut, didn't he? Fantastic. Not um, a bad little signing, that. No. Uh, Oxford's away record, seven wins and five draws. They go to Fortress Gig Lane on Tuesday night, though. <laughs> game. Not Fort- it very much is Fortress, isn't it? Eight yeah. unbeaten at home. Eight unbeaten at home. Best run at home since January 2010. Wow. With that 1-0 win against Wickham on Saturday. Andy Hinchcliffe picking Anton Forrest's goals, one of his goals of the weekend. All I can say is there can't be many good goals of no. the weekend if they've got in the top three. Um, and, but we've got to finish with this story from um, from League Two uh, the story of Torquay United playing away at Portsmouth there they are getting to bed Friday night at the Hilton Hotel in Farlington however at 2 o'clock in the morning on Saturday a water tank breaks and water is streaming in all the players in the pyjamas have to come down to the lobby and uh, <laughs> they stand there for 90 minutes and then the found guests at the nearby Marriott Hotel in Cosham I think it is so they moved there finally get in there about 5 o'clock in the morning get to bed and they still won 1-0 at Portsmouth. How bad must Portsmouth be if they're losing 1-0 to a team well, we've been up all night? We've seen this all season. They were 5-1 to one to win the league and they're looking like they might get relegated this year. All right, guys, we man. tried breaking the water tank. Next week, we're going to do something else. <laughs> and uh, we've got to mention, finally, miss of the weekend, George Donnelly for Rochdale. Good Lord, it was bad, wasn't, wasn't it? it? Two yards out. You didn't get away with it, George. We all saw it. Uh, right, that is it for our scouting special this week. Thank you very much to uh, our guests. And you can uh, go and... Uh, Listen back to those two interviews, as I mentioned, in full at soundcloud.com slash podcast if you want to hear more from Ross Wilson and more from Mike Calvin. Right, prediction for the uh, the Watford-Leicester game at the weekend then? Uh, three, no, 2-1 Leicester. Oh, We always win 2-1. Walker. Well, well now. You haven't reckoned, or you haven't <laughs> taken into account the wonderful uh, Hungarian midfielder that we've signed from Genoa, Daniel Toza, who controlled the midfield beautifully on Sunday. Fernando Forestier is playing like he was something out of Bayern Munich's. Well, I was going to say he played absolutely abysmally uh, against Forest. He was was pressing like a, a man possessed. Big Fitz Hall is back. He was suspended. Just tell me when to fade him out, Jim. If he was playing against Forest, we wouldn't collapse like we did. That's a good spine. There he goes. We're going to win. <laughs> He's going to win. 2-1. Straight face, 2-1. Uh, blogs right. at wearegoingup.co.uk and the uh, Twitter is at Wagyu Podcast. And uh, that is it. We'll speak to you in seven days' time. This is the We Are Going Up Podcast. We've got the Football League covered. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.